Welcome to FASD Hope, a podcast about fetal alcohol spectrum disorder through the lens of parent advocates with over 19 years of lived experience. FASD Hope provides awareness, information, and inspiration to those people whose lives have been touched by FASD. And I'm the host of FASD Hope, Natalie Vecchione. Welcome to today's episode. Hi, and thanks for joining us today. Today's episode is titled Created to be Free, a conversation with Suzanne Emery. Suzanne Emery has a master's in leadership nursing, and she is a family nurse practitioner. She is a certified facilitator of the FACETS neurobehavioral model, and she is a FACETS program director. Suzanne lived in Costa Rica for over 20 years, serving families and children at risk. She worked as a resident nurse at a children's home and then as a supervisor for a large health child care organization for over 15 years. Suzanne is the founder and lead facilitator for Created to be Free, Hope for Families Affected by Alcohol, a project she started in 2013. Suzanne is a single mother of two wonderful young men, the younger of whom has an FASD. She lives in the Portland area. For judgment is without mercy to the one who has shown no mercy. Mercy triumphs over judgment. James 2, verse 13. Welcome to today's episode, everyone. I am thrilled to have back on our show, Suzanne Emery. Suzanne, uh, we spoke with her in 2021 as part of Facets Friday. She's a Facets facilitator and a member of the Facets organization. And Suzanne also created a a very special organization and ministry really about having support and helping those and really seeing those that have brain-based diagnosis, such as FASD, really seeing those individuals for whom they are and how the Lord sees them and how we need to support them the way the Lord wants us to support those with FASD and brain-based diagnoses. So we had a long conversation uh, before our recording last time. And I told her, you know, I'd love to have you back on the show to talk about what you're doing with Created to be Free. So on that very lengthy introduction, I would like to welcome back to FASD Hope, Suzanne Emery. Suzanne, welcome back to FASD Hope. Thank you, Natalie. It's a joy to be here with you again. Suzanne and I started talking before the episode and I said, wait, we need to record. We need to start recording because we just started diving into these topics that she and I are both very passionate about. Let's just remind our listeners your personal and your professional journey in the FASD and neuro-based communities. So I have, I, I had lived most of my adult life in San Jose, Costa Rica as a missionary under the United World Mission. And I was working for a large childcare organization there. And in my journey of working with children at risk that came from all different kinds of socioeconomic and um, different kinds of trauma and different situations, I ended up uh, adopting two boys while I was living in Costa Rica. And I thought that with my experience um, of risk, I at least had a lot of tools that I might need to uh, be a parent. And I knew the journey would not be easy because I adopted my boys when they were a little older at five and six. Um, So I knew it wasn't going to be an easy path. And with my older son, the first year kind of went like I thought it was not easy. We had to work through a lot of things. He was also very capable of kind of having conversations and working through different things. And then a year later, I adopted his brother and all the wonderful techniques I knew of working um, with children that had come from different backgrounds and different behaviors did not work Um, and in fact made things worse. And I kind of was scared myself because I kind of thought I was a good person until I started parenting him. And I 
started seeing the darkness of my soul and the things that I could think and say and do that I would have never imagined would have come out of me. And so I started looking for help under realizing I didn't have, I wasn't understanding something long story short, um, probably both of my boys, but the younger is much more affected in his daily life is on the fetal alcohol spectrum. And once I understood that and then got in contact with the organization facets and had conversations with Diane Melvin, who was the creator and founder of that organization, and really started understanding what was going on. And it was making such a huge difference in my personal life as a person. And then as I was able to understand and respond to my son, I realized my son wasn't the only child, couldn't be the only child in Costa Rica on the fetal alcohol spectrum. And so that's really how my ministry kind of shifted from being the supervisor of health for this very large organization to feeling very passionate about educating people on fetal alcohol and becoming a support to families and across the board, but especially the faith community where I saw some extra interesting challenges in understanding um, fetal alcohol and what that means in real life and parenting. So I ended up moving out of my supervisor of health position at that organization and started a new ministry called Created to be Free, Hope for Families Affected by Alcohol. And that's what I've dedicated my life to now for the last probably 10 years. Wow. Wow. That is an amazing journey. And let's talk before we start really digging into our conversation today, talking about Created to be Free and also talking about what we've learned as far as how, like you said, how there are such big needs in the faith community of understanding those with FASD and other brain-based diagnoses. Before we start diving into that, how did you feel the Lord nudging you into creating to be free? Bouncing off of um, what I mentioned earlier, I just felt like in my, the position that I had as supervisor of health, for the large child care organization in Costa Rica, I felt really um, that my job as a missionary was always to work myself out of my job and have a national person do what I was doing. And I had a nurse under me that I, I knew could do a better job in that position than I was doing. And then when I started learning about fetal alcohol, because even as a nurse, I didn't know anything about fetal alcohol. I mean, I've heard of fetal alcohol syndrome, but nothing that was practical or helpful. And I realized as I tried to get help um, in Costa Rica, nobody knew anything about fetal alcohol. And I thought, oh my gosh, this is like a huge need. Um, and so, yeah, as I prayed about it, I just really felt like God was um, showing me it was time to, to step out of what I was doing and kind of jump off into this whole new area of creating a ministry that could um, educate, give training to really anyone and anywhere that wanted to listen about what fetal alcohol was, but then particularly using facets material, um, which is the brain-based approach to understanding behaviors and then responding in a way that um, is more in line with the person's abilities. And more importantly, even than that is just celebrating who they are as a person and building on their strengths as we think of how we're gonna do things differently. And to me, that just resonated with the God that I love and serve and that I believe created me. And it seemed to me that we as faith communities, especially, but this is true in the world as well. We have these boxes that we feel like people should fit into. And when they don't, we just keep trying harder and harder to get them to fit into our expectations and the way we think they should be. Um, and when that doesn't happen, then that's where we, right, try to get stricter and firmer and more discipline. And, and usually all that 
just makes things worse. And so to me, it was almost like the, and this is the logo I've created to be free, the butterfly, that little caterpillar inside of the um, pupa or whatever you call it, the little capsule. And that's kind of how a lot of people feel like they're stuck in this little tiny constricting box. And I really believe for everybody, God wants to, for us to see the beauty of what's inside of there and just burst out kind of the box and let that butterfly free to be who it is in the beauty of um, the way God has created each one of us to be so individual and unique. And um, so that's where kind of that whole image came from created to be free and my really passion and belief that that's the work that God wanted me to begin. Amen. Amen. And in asking you that question, I I think what I hear often from other guests who have formed ministries and formed supports for people in the FASD and brain-based communities is that there's a need and you have to step away from your comfort zone and say, okay, Lord, I'm following you. And you know, I feel like that's what we did with FASD hope, you know, it was like, okay, I'm stepping away from these jobs and stepping away from this. And we're just going to do something completely different because, you know, there are very few podcasts about FASD and, and more importantly, we just like so many other people who listen, we know our faith in the Lord is carrying us through these trials and refining us as parents. And we know that we cannot change our children. Children are fearfully and wonderfully made but we can better support them. And we can also, like you said, help them get out of that tight shell of, I think it's an analogy of like expectations. I think hearing you talk about the logo of, you know, the butterfly coming out of its shell, and I'm sure there's a better technical word for shell. I'm just saying shell, but you know, the butterfly coming out, it's really, I think that tightness is really the world's expectations of what they want for our children. You know, like you said so perfectly, these boxes that we expect people to be in, what the church's expectations are. And I say that we're going to get, you know, talk about that a little further, what communities' expectations are and what schools and education's expectations are. There are a lot, you know, when we think about an individual, they interact with a lot of different systems, even healthcare. I would even venture also to say healthcare, you know, healthcare expects our children, especially those with an FASD. Okay. This is how things go. And then when you as a parent say, well, well, wait, that's not happening. Unless you have somebody like yourself who is trained in FASD, most often the answer you get is, well, that's just how it is. No, this is, this is what I think. So I'm really glad that you're talking about that because this conversation I'm I'm excited about it because not only are you sharing your ministry and and what's in your heart, but I know that there are many people out there that are going through what you've been through, what I've been through in terms of having to create the supports that we need through, we need these supports through churches, through other ministries. And oftentimes we're the ones creating these ministries because either systems feel like, oh, it's not necessary, or this is not our ministry's focus or whatever. So I'm kind of rambling on, I'm going to get back on track and get out of this rabbit hole. So let's talk about created to be free. And I'd like you to just share what specifically you've done. And, you know, we're airing this in 2022. Let's just talk about how you've grown and and what are some of the things that you hope to do through Created to be Free? So originally Created to be Free um, started in San Jose, Costa Rica. So most of what I was doing was all in Spanish. So all of um, facets gave me permission to uh, translate most of their material into Spanish So I originally started just kind of talking and asking people if they would be interested in hearing a little bit. And it was really challenging in Costa Rica because nobody even knew that term fetal alcohol. So I also had to be creative about how I could use language in a way that anybody would understand why in the world they needed to know anything about fetal alcohol, right? So I started just doing kind of like one hour little talks on um, putting out like brochures and things saying, do you know somebody that has difficult behaviors that you don't understand? 
come hear a different perspective, um, something like that. And I remember the first little training I did was in our church, actually, because um, they were having a lot of difficulty, not only with my son, but with a lot of other children. It was just chaos. Like they were trying. I mean, there were people with good hearts who really loved the kids Um, but you know, my son half the time would end up running out of the room he was supposed to be in and running around the church and just, you know, it was just chaos. And, um, so I started there and they happened to be a very open, perceptive, um, group that really wanted to learn. And they saw how relevant it was to not only my son, but many others. And they actually, started making a lot of changes in the way they did the children's program um, because of the training and understanding of, you know, maybe what a lot of these children needed and what wasn't working. And, um, and then from there, you know, it's kind of like word of mouth. So I would do a training there and somebody would say, oh, Susie, you totally need to come here. And so I ended up Um, you know, over a course of probably three or four years while I was still in Costa Rica, um, there were seminaries in Costa Rica that were having me teach their seminary students um, go through the whole um, like 21 hour training or make it into actually like a semester course. Um, There were universities that I was teaching at in Costa Rica that um, different students from different disciplines were attending. And then, yes, I got invited to other churches and schools and um, and children's hospital and all kinds of different environments. And I realized just um, it was like putting little drops of water on a dry sponge, right? That it was just like sucked up. And then there was, there's just all this need. So before I left Costa Rica in 2016, um, I had trained two other people, two other people had gone through the year long training of facilitators training that facets does. Um, and one of those people in particular is still very active in Costa Rica training. She's a special ed teacher, actually. And her story is the one I shared actually on the last podcast that um, her husband, they found out later in life, was on the fetal alcohol spectrum. And so they have a whole ministry, their family really, um, in fetal alcohol. And then um, towards the end of my time in Costa Rica, before we moved up to Portland, Oregon, um, I, I realized that the field was way bigger than Costa Rica. And I started, you know, communicating with, because I'm a missionary of the United World Mission, I realized there was need for this all over Latin America, really all over the world. And so we ended up, um, for different reasons, moving our headquarters to Portland, Oregon. And since then, things have really multiplied. Um, I I have gone to different places in the world, like Mexico and um, Europe, and I was right before COVID, I was going to go to South Africa to do a training with the government there, actually, because South um, South Africa has some of the highest rates of fetal alcohol in the world. Um, and so I've been able to do a lot of trainings. And now actually COVID was actually a blessing to my ministry because then everything went online and there are no limits, right? To who um, you can reach. And so besides just um, like, I do one-on-one trainings with families because some families, instead of taking a webinar um, or a training through facets, they like to do it one-on-one at their own pace and their own schedule. And like, really curtail the information, um, make it really applicable to their particular situation or child. Um, And I've done that with people in the United Kingdom and people really all over. Um, So I do the one-on-one and then I provide support and consultation for parents, mostly one-on-one, giving the training and then after the training, continuing to apply the brain-based model because it takes a lot of intentional work. Most of our brains are not hardwired to understand behavior like this. And, um, and then I do um, support groups 
as well online. So um, yeah, I've worked with local churches here in Portland and I've done trainings to our missionaries at the United World Mission who are working with people all over the world. So it's really kind of endless, all the places, all the paths that this ends up going. That is wonderful. How many lives and how many angles of people touched by FASD that you have reached through your ministry. That That's fantastic. And if you have not listened to Suzanne's episode um, from Facets Friday, where she explains and she shares that story of that family, I highly encourage you to go back and listen to it because that family story was amazing. And it really talked about the importance of, of learning what is the basis behind the symptom or what, you know, we think is behavior, which is actually a behavioral symptom. So um, yeah, that, that story was, was amazing. So we know, and, and I, I pulled up while you were talking. So it's in the Bible that you should not drink if you are about to get pregnant or pregnant. It's in Judges 13. It's mentioned four times by the angel of the Lord. And I, I'm, I'm quoting scripture here, Judges 13, 4. Now, therefore, please be careful not to drink wine or similar drink and not to eat anything unclean. And that was spoken to Manoah's wife, who was Samson's mother. Why, before we dive into our conversation about having the church support those with FASD and brain-based diagnoses, I've had this conversation with different guests. I know why, but what is your... Why do you think we have gotten so far away from that when it's in the Bible, when the Lord instructs us, don't drink if you're thinking about pregnant, don't drink if you are pregnant. Like I said, I, I, I have, you know, a take, but I, I just want to hear what your take on it. Why do you think everyone, including the church has gotten so far away from that? Well, that's a big question. And I think there's probably lots and lots of reasons. First of all, you know, not everybody reads the Bible or knows what the Bible <laughs> exactly, says. Exactly. And even if they do, um, they don't know the whole thing, right? And exactly. they could they could take that kind of scripture just for a very particular situation, right? right? Because Samson was a very particular person. Yes. <laughs> um, and so yes, the the fa- but the matter is, I mean, for almost since the beginning of time, there has been some awareness that maybe alcohol and pregnancy aren't a good mix. Um, However, there is not general education on that at all, right? In all the world, really, it's not like out on the front line um, that alcohol and pregnancy don't go together. And today, right, there's lots of signage in the United States. And once you're pregnant, a lot of people know that alcohol and pregnancy aren't a good mix, but um, many, many pregnancies are unplanned and social drinking um, is very normal and accepted all over the world, right? And in the United States, social drinking among men and women has multiplied exponentially over the last few decades. It's just like normal. It's like drinking Coke, right? Alcohol is just a normal, a normal beverage that is served almost everywhere you go. And even in faith settings, right? Mm -hmm. Like communion. And Mm -hmm. um, I mean, it's very common in some, depending on what denomination people are a part of, it's totally accepted to drink alcohol and so I think, I think probably the biggest piece of that is just simple, I don't know if the word is ignorance, but lack of education. Yeah, yeah. Um, and, and really not understanding the effects of alcohol. Yes. And then even when we understand that, there's even a more important issue than that. And the issue is when somebody... It has an issue with alcohol or they're addicted to alcohol, even if you educate a man or woman, right. That has issues with alcohol. It's not so simple as just saying, Oh, okay. I'm not going to drink then. Yeah, yeah. Um, and people, I mean, outside of the faith community, 
community, but I think this is an issue in the faith community. We tend to almost shun and shame um, the whole topic of alcohol and women and pregnancy. So like if a woman was, um, you know, drinking during pregnancy, um, would they feel free to share that? I don't know that there's very many faith communities that that's like a safe topic Agreed. to talk about. Yeah. Um, and so it's much bigger. It's really complicated Yeah. and it's not an easy thing. And um, I've heard somebody say that, you know, people say fetal alcohol is a hundred percent preventable. And I've heard people say just like war is a hundred percent preventable, right? It's, it's not that simple. <laughs> exactly. Exactly. And I'm glad you're really focusing on the complicated parts of these issues. Yeah. And, and the answer that I always talk to when, when I get asked if I'm guesting on somebody else's podcast, especially people in the sober movement community, which, which are, they actually are very supportive of learning about FASD and, 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 and being allies in FASD. I think we live in a fallen world and it is normal to consume alcohol, but it's not normal to not consume alcohol. And that's something that I point out even, you know, back, back in, in those days, you know, in, in the days of Samson, it, it's nor it was normal to drink wine. And if you didn't, if you chose not to, then there was, like you said, that shun and shame. Well, why aren't, why aren't you? Well, maybe that person is in recovery or maybe that per person just chooses not to. Or so I think that we, part of this conversation that I just wanted to, to share with you, and I'm so glad you answered that question. We need to get away from the, it's normal to drink alcohol. No, no. Drinking alcohol is, you know, there's many reasons people drink, but if you don't drink alcohol, you should not be shunned or shamed, or there should not be stigma that that is your choice, just like you choose not to do other things. So I'm, I'm really glad you're, you answered that. And, and thank you. Thank you. So let's talk about, we had this discussion before our last episode, and then we also had this discussion. Now we want the church to understand and better support those individuals that have fetal alcohol spectrum disorders, as well as other brain-based neurobehavioral diagnoses. Why do we see such a lag in these ministries in, you know, just church as, as a whole in, in faith-based communities? Yeah, Natalie, that's another loaded question, right? We have lots of loaded questions here. So again, I think it's very complex and um, there's many, many, many factors and it's different um, because there's so many different kinds of faith communities within the Christian world, right? So um, there are different answers to that. But I think one important thing is that in general, right, as Christian people, we are taught to see behavior through a moral lens, so behavior ends up being linked to sin or not, right? And anytime a behavior deviates from what we have understood as the way that God wants us to live, we call it sin. Um, and it's not to, to negate the fact that that's a piece, right? That's a piece of willful um, choices that we may or may not the way we choose to live or not. But I don't think um, it's been common to have space in that perspective for um, thinking a bigger question, like what's behind what this person is doing? Um, is this simply a choice to, to live according to God's word or live outside of God's will and word, right? Um, and I think until recently, there hasn't even been room to understand, for example, that a really common thing for people in the fetal alcohol spectrum is this word confabulation, which um, really looks like somebody that's continually lying 
right? And so most of us um, in the Christian world, when we see that somebody's not telling the truth, we tell them they're lying, right? And that that's sinful. And as parents, we go through this whole thing, right? Of teaching our children that honesty is so important and God values honesty and he doesn't want us to lie and and all of that's fine and good and true, right? But what happens if the person isn't intentionally lying and it just looks like that, right? So um, what we know, confabulation has to do with memory issues and also being totally social and wanting to be able to participate in conversations. And so somebody with memory issues, they'll jump in and start telling a story and they, they literally don't remember pieces yes. of it. And so they like fill in the gaps with these, these pieces that to somebody else looks like a total liar. Right. And, but when you confront the person on that, they often get defensive and angry. And so the traditional approach, right. In the Christian community is to confront that person with lying, to tell them they're, you know, that sinful behavior and they need to repent and they need, you know, all this stuff which for somebody on the neurobehavioral spectrum um, usually will make the situation worse. They will get incredibly angry and defensive and, and it continues to happen, right? It's not like that conversation changes their behavior. And so to only look at what is perceived as lying through a moral lens does not get us to the root of the behavior for some people, right? It's not that we're not all capable of lying, but, um, for people that are actually that have memory loss, um, and and not just FASD, but we're talking about confabulation from brain injury, from other form, other forms of brain injury, exactly from, from, yeah, mental illness from, you know, we know confabulation comes with many diagnoses, not just FASD. Right. Like we talked about on the last episode, dementia and Alzheimer's, I mean, all kinds of right. The spectrum. Yes. So I, I believe, and it's written all over in God's word, that God judges our heart, right? He sees our heart and our intention. And um, it's hard for us as human beings because we don't, we don't always know, right, what's behind a person's behavior. But I think the brain-based approach helps us um, in the faith community, if we're willing to see a little bigger that behavior um, isn't always necessarily a moral choice um, or decision or sin, right? That there may be other reasons, um, really organic, um, physical reasons why somebody does what they do and they're not intentionally having, quote, bad behavior. Um, So that's one piece I think that's a big trip up um, yes. In the Christian community, when we look at behavior and the way we interpret behavior, and then how we end up responding, right? I, I mean, even going to the extreme case in those, I mean, there's people that, you know, are very involved in like spiritual warfare and casting out demons. And I mean, even like demonizing a child that continually has some of these behaviors that are really brain-based mm-hmm. characteristics, but in the faith community, we can see them as being possessed mm-hmm. or, and then like having these kind of um, prayer times where we're like, you know, casting out demons and, you know, how does that child interpret that kind of situation, like that they're terrible and evil and awful and they, and there's nothing they can do to change because it has to do their behavior is the, the reason they're doing what they're doing is because because the way their brain works, right. And it has nothing to do with an evil spirit so that it can create a lot of confusion and actually, um, lead that particular child down a road where they feel totally rejected, not accepted, not loved, and that end up feeling awful about themselves because it's not something that they're choosing. Yes. And again, if we think about like, and we think about in the Bible, how we hear of somebody who has epilepsy and has seizures and how 
many legalistic, you know, people who were, and I love how Jesus confronted them. You look at somebody as less than, but they're not. This is something that they have. And you look at them the way you look at that individual, the way Jesus looks at them. And you see so much alignment of the brain-based thinking of, okay, where in the brain or the body is this coming from? So for example, epilepsy, fetal alcohol spectrum disorder, dementia, anything like that. Where is this coming from in the brain? And then how do we minister to that person? How do we support and serve that person? I, I, I see this journey of FASD has brought me as mom and as an individual so much closer with my faith because I have been so broken on this journey because of how the faith community and how many communities have interpreted our family, our sons, I'm using air quotes, behavior when we know it's behavioral symptoms. So there is such an alignment of grace-based thinking and parenting and the neurobehavioral approach to parenting. It's been a very hot topic on our episodes. And we actually had an episode in 2020 devoted to that, to the alignment of grace-based and neurobehavioral. As an educator and as a believer, as a follower of Jesus, how do both approaches of, of parenting and caregiving, how do they intersect so beautifully? And how can we express that to people listening, especially if we want to communicate this to church and faith-based communities, that seeing somebody who has fetal alcohol spectrum disorder, any other type of brain-based diagnosis, whether young, old, those two approaches have so much in alignment. How can that better support those individuals, especially if we're talking to people in faith-based communities who may be listening, who may be saying, Hey, how can we get our church to better support these people? Mm-hmm. Yeah. Um, to answer that, Natalie, I'm going to go back um, a little bit and touch on a few things that you just said. So I think um, along with seeing behavior through a moral lens, I think it's normal for us as human beings, and especially maybe in the faith community, to focus more on outward behavior rather than looking at a person's heart, right? And so we focus on what we see instead of being curious and asking some of those questions you were you were talking about, right? Like, what's behind this behavior? Um, what, what's going on? Why is this person doing this? And I really believe that the brain-based approach is right out of God's heart. It is written all the way through scripture. And one of my favorite stories in the Bible that illustrates this is in Numbers 35, 9 through 15. And it talks about murder And, um, you know, the consequences in the Old Testament when somebody killed somebody else were pretty rough, right? Either that person was killed or, you know, there was a lot of, um, you know, you do this, you get this, like, you know, kind of the consequence based, right, where we get a lot of these ideas from. But in, in this particular story, it specifically says... When somebody accidentally kills somebody else, instead of the the kind of normal consequence, they actually are taken to a place of refuge, to an asylum, while the whole rest of the community can calm down and, you know, get their thinking straight (laughs) until they bring this person back into the community And then, you know, figure out, you know, how to keep the person who accidentally, whatever happened, killed the person safe. And then, you know, how this should be addressed. And to me, that's kind that's a a huge piece of of the brain-based approach because it shows that God, he doesn't look at the behavior and then decide what has to be done. He looks way before that. Like what happened? And anytime a behavior is not intentional, oh my gosh, it is treated so differently than when it's a willful choice, right? And sometimes that's hard also to determine as parents, right? What is my child actually 
like have control over and what they don't have control over, but to even consider that, right. And then realize, oh my gosh, you know, God doesn't give consequences for behavior that was accidental or non-intentional, right? And if we even look at the story of David, I mean, David is the only person in the Bible who God says is a man after his own heart. And I mean, for all of us who know the Bible, David, (laughs) oh my gosh, right? He had an affair and he killed somebody. And I mean, on and on and on. Mm -hmm. And it's like, how can God say that if he's looking at outward behavior, right? He's not, he's looking at David's heart And even in the midst of all of that, all of those, what we would call terrible sins, right? David continually comes back to God and is wanting a relationship with God and trusting God. And you know what? That is what's important to God. It's not that our behavior and what we do isn't important, right? Because it can affect other people. And I mean, that's, there's all kinds of replications, but the point is that we so often our main focus is on the behavior and correcting behavior instead of looking at a person's heart. So when that brings us to the grace-based parenting, right? And um, from what I know about grace-based parenting, um, much of it goes hand in hand with um, a brain-based approach to looking at behavior, right? It's much more grace filled. So instead of just looking at a behavior and slapping on right behavior modification and, and um, consequences and rewards, it's looking at the person and trying to see them as God sees them and helping them become um, who God created them to be. Um, However, grace-based parenting also, when, when you get to like after like the heart of it, it's still based on a lot of consequences. It's still based on, um, you know, we have to mold our children. Right. And, and there's like logical consequences to this and that, and the other thing, and they don't learn if you don't. And again, it's individualized, right? So if a child, um, if again, if, if they have control over their, whatever the behavior is, and it's a behavior that doesn't show us that there's brain differences, then yes. I mean, it's not that consequence and reward never is a good idea parenting, right? If, if we use um, behavior modification or consequence and reward, and it changes a child's behavior, and um, it's something that's working, well, great. But it's for the children that we are using consequences. It's like saying, okay, right? You've lost recess for a child in a wheelchair. You've lost recess until you can walk again, right? And that's actually cruel, right? I mean, how would, how would any of us feel if our, we, our legs didn't work and we were told we lost recess? until um, we could walk again, right? And that's actually what we end up doing when we're using consequences for brain-based behavior because the child, there's nothing the child can do to um, change what's going on. It's us, like you said at the beginning, Natalie. And that's why I think um, God, he parents us with a brain heart-based approach, right? He doesn't parent us on our outward behavior and then, oh, well, you did this, then this, this, this is your consequence or this is your reward. We see that through scripture in different places, right? And that's where we get this idea, but we're, we're ignoring some of the other huge pieces, like more foundational principles of God's heart and the way he sees us and loves us as individuals and is always also allowing us, right, to experience his love and his grace and his mercy. Um, So that's just a piece, I would say, of kind of the grace-based parenting, how it goes in line with 
brain-based, but also there's pieces that don't, yes. that we need to be careful of. And, and I'm glad you are saying that, Suzanne, because we have compared, uh, I have compared a lot in the past grace-based parenting with neurobehavioral parenting. And that is exactly true. The, the whole component afterwards of consequences, again, God shows us so much mercy and grace, you know, every minute. And we know that grace is a gift and we need to extend that grace to those that have any type of brain-based diagnosis, FASD, any type of where any, any type of diagnosis where there's no control over many portions of the brain or all portions of the brain, depending on how that individual is impacted. And, and I'm just so thankful that you're sharing this because again, we see so many things, like you said, as, as the outward quote unquote behaviors, rather than what's in the heart, what did this person mean to do? What, what was behind it or what was the trigger? There's so many factors involved when something happens when an action happens that we really need to, again, I think of how Jesus taught us so much in the Bible, how we need to step back and look or so many parables and, and, and stories in the Bible where Jesus shared how we need to see beyond the person's background or beyond the person's circumstance or beyond the person's ability into what's in their heart. I'm just so thankful that, that you're sharing this. So Okay. Now I pray let's talk to churches and faith-based communities and, and those communities that are based in faith and let's share how they can better support our kids, teens, adults with, you know, FASD and brain-based diagnoses. I know that you and I have shared how we've encountered churches, communities, that basically have said, oh, this is what we have and that's it. And that's just not enough. That's, that's, there's really such a lag. How can they support our kids and our teens and young adults? Right. So once again, I'm going to back up a minute and then go forward. Um, So I think on the last piece that we just talked about, two things that are really important um, just to end on the grace-based parenting that it looked, it seems to me like the end result of grace-based parenting is that our children also will be able to extend grace to others, right? By the way that they learn um, as we parent them. And so that's that's good, right? I mean, we, we want that for everybody, but we always need to be asking the question, what does a person's brain have to be able to do to either respond from this way of parenting, this strategy, or then to be able to show grace to others, right? It's not just an emotional kind of thing we learn, right? And and with together with that, we love in the faith-based communities to use the word responsible, right? Well, I'm just I'm just um, teaching them to be responsible. That's my job as a parent. And if we break that word responsible up, it means able to give a response, right? So that's all good and fine too, as long as what we're expecting, the person is actually able to do because nobody's responsible for what they they aren't able to do, right? So I just wanted to add those two little things as we kind of switch now on the practical piece of this. So what does this mean for the church, for faith communities, And I think number one is to be open, to be educated, right? So um, it's going to be hard for any of us to know what, who a person is, why they do what they do, and then what that means, both as individuals and as a community to embrace people the way God does, if we don't understand what's going on, right? So first of all, I would say church communities can be open to being trained, whether that's through facets training or, you know, there's a myriad of ways to be trained on fetal alcohol and these other neural behavioral conditions and what that means. Um, what, what are the behaviors that we see? And um, then what's an appropriate 
way to respond to create like these accommodations, right? So that everybody can be successful and feel loved and accepted and embraced in a community and not just a certain group that is able to do a certain set of whatever we think they should be doing. So um, one really beautiful example of a church um, accommodating for kind of the neurobehavioral spectrum is in a beautiful video that actually the Mennonite church put out called Can't Not Won't, A Christian Response to FASD. And um, I I really um, recommend watching this video. It's really beautifully done, but it gives the example of a church that um, they recognize, right, that they have a lot of people in their community, which all of us do, we just don't recognize it sometimes, that are on the neurobehavioral spectrum. And so we in faith communities tend to do what they do in school, right? We put children in categories by age, and we have Sunday school classes by age, which we know for people on the neurobehavioral spectrum, spectrum often they're not at their chronological age so they totally obliterated the whole age thing um that wasn't how they divided children up and they realized that that children and adults right learn in different ways so some are more auditory some are more visual some are more hands-on so they created all these different ways of like when the children go to the children's program right all these different ways of interacting with whatever the lesson was that day. So if, you know, they're telling a story, there's a place children can go to listen to the story. There's another place children can go to write. There's another place where children can go to dress up and do drama or do art. And it's the children that get to decide where they go. Not the adults that say, you're going here, you're going there. You're and you know what? It ended up being such a blessing, not just for the children on the neurobehavioral spectrum, but for everybody. The church realized, oh my gosh, this is such a beautiful way to have the children's program, right? And so that's just a concrete example of a way, right? There's all different kinds of ways that we can, but I think we need to have more open minds, be flexible, be trained, um, have individuals that have special heart for people that do things differently. Sometimes, you know, one-on-ones are needed just to like, if kids are in a group, um, to have people available to take somebody outside or go do something else, right? If it's like too much stimulation too, to be in a big group with lots of noise and lots of kids. Um, I know families that have started like a home church, right? Where it's a smaller group and they can kind of structure the time so that it fits the needs of families and children. So, I mean, that's like a totally different way, right? To um, to have church or a faith-based um, little community. There are many, many ideas. My, I'll, I'll end on this because I think our time's coming to an end here. But my son, um, when we were still in Costa Rica, my boys were totally different in what worked for them for church. So we ended up going... I went with my older son to one church on Saturday nights and my younger son to another church on Sunday nights. And my son that's more affected by fetal alcohol, it was really hard for him to be in a church with a lot of people and noise and stuff. And so we went to a much smaller community with him and um, they let him help with the sound. And he loved that. He would go on Sunday evenings and go right up to the sound space and get to help do all of that. And that's what he did, right? At church and it made him feel like he was contributing and he loved going. And so it's finding, right? That piece that um, all of us, God has made all of us with interests and passions and um, things that we can contribute to the community. So finding those things and letting each person play their part, right? In the larger community. I am taking such 
fastidious notes here and, and going to share all of these wonderful, wonderful suggestions and recommendations. And I'm also going to find that video and share it too, because I think it's important for people to, to watch that. I love this, Suzanne. This is just so helpful. And I think that if churches, faith-based communities as a whole can, can recognize these needs and how I've actually had a church say, well, we don't have anybody in our community presenting with any of those types of needs. And my response was, you just don't see them. You just don't see them. So if churches can put on these grace-based neurobehavioral lens of, like you said, looking at an individual, not the outward behaviors, the outward symptoms, for example, like being over overwhelmed in a, in a very large, loud worship auditorium or in a worship setting, but saying, okay, how can we help that person so that they can really embrace and enjoy their experience in worship and make that so that we're bringing it to their brain. I love all these suggestions, Suzanne. I'm so thankful. So before we end on our hope takeaway, how can people get in touch with you through created to be free? Um, you can get in touch with me through my personal email, which I think Natalie has that she can write. And then for the created to be free project, it would be through right now through the mission that I work with. So it's www.uwm.org. And when you get into that web page, you look under missionaries and find my name. And then that's where it, it's written up about our ministry. The actual website is under construction because it was all written in Spanish and it has to be all up to date in English. So I don't actually have the created to be free website up at the moment. But for this week's uh, notes and this week's social media posts, we will share the um, the website that Suzanne mentioned and how uh, um, how you can find her and then get in touch with her. And of course, we'll be sharing this information in our program notes too for today's episode. So Suzanne, this has been such a eye-opening, inspiring, blessed conversation. I'm so, so thankful that you have shared your heart and, and that whoever's listening can just know that, um, we hear, we hear you, we are on the same journey as you and that there are people out there that are doing something to help those, um, with brain-based diagnoses, just be free in who they are and who the Lord created them to be. I, I think that's really just, just on our hearts. So let's end on a hope takeaway. There is just so much hope in our journey. I think oftentimes we just get sidetracked by the things that, like you said, constrict our kids. How can we have hope in that and, and help our children to be free in who the Lord made them to be? Well, I think the last thing I just like to share, which goes back to something Natalie and I were talking about before we started this recording today, is just remembering that we need people in our lives who are different from us and function differently and that that encourage us to continue to seek God's heart and understand ourselves. And in my journey, my sons are the greatest gift God has given me. And I tell them they're my greatest teachers because they help me every day be a better human being. Um, they make me continually look inward and um, see God's heart and who God is. You know, Jesus, the people he was harshest on were the strict religious leaders, right? That wanted to stick to the book and the rules. And he didn't have a lot of good things to say to that group of people. And if we look at Jesus' heart, which I believe when we can be living out that way, it's it, again, it's a gift to us. Jesus always went after the one, not the multitude, Amen. the one he went after the one that's his heart. And those that are vulnerable and defenseless and need advocates. And so in seeking out and like Natalie was saying, the churches that say, we don't have anybody. Yes, you do. And even if it's just one, then that community, that's what the focus should be. 
on that one that doesn't go with the rest of the flock, right? Um, because that's where Jesus's heart is. That's where God's heart is. And that's where we're going to find the beauty of God's love and what he has for us. And so in the end, um, our children or people around us who have brains that work differently and are hard for us sometimes, they are really some of God's greatest gifts to us that help us get closer to the heart of, of our beautiful, loving God. So that's what I would want to leave with you. Amen. What wonderful, blessed hope takeaways. Suzanne Emery of Created to be Free and just an amazing advocate in the FASD uh, neurobehavioral community. Thank you so much again for being on FASD Hope. Thank you for having me. It's always a joy. Thanks again for listening to FASD Hope with Natalie Becchione. If you like our show and want more information, check out FASDHope.com or please leave us a five-star rating and review and follow us on Apple Podcasts, Podbean, Spotify, or wherever you get your podcasts. Make sure you join us again next week and remember to be informed, take care, and always have hope.